This episode is brought to you by our incredible community of listener supporters on Patreon. Our Patreon offers listeners exclusive archival content, extended episodes, and access to community conversations diving deeper with past guests. Your monthly pledge ensures that For the Wild has the funding to keep producing informative, thoughtful, and rooted conversations and programming. All funding supports our small team of creatives, podcast production, and special For the Wild projects like our zines and slow study courses. To support us on Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash for the wild, or if you would rather make a one-time donation or recurring donation outside of Patreon, please visit for the wild.world slash donate. For the Wild podcast is brought to you in part by the Calliopeia Foundation and listeners like you. Calliopeia supports projects interweaving spirituality, culture, and ecology. We are grateful for their support and the support of grassroots contributions from listeners. To learn more about the Calliopeia Foundation, visit calliopeia.org. To make a donation to For the Wild, visit forthewild.world/donate or support us through Patreon. Hey For the Wild community, it's Ayana here. December has arrived and we are reminded that winter is the season of giving. If you've already been especially moved by what For the Wild has offered this past year, we're inviting you to pledge your support by becoming a monthly member on Patreon or by making a one-time donation through our website. As we grow into our goal of raising $5,000 a month, we're asking you to pledge your support, not just on behalf of yourself, but on behalf of other listeners who learn and grow from the visionaries we interview. We know the holiday season can be overwhelming, and we're asking you to help sustain this platform and make an investment in media that seeks to dismantle narratives that further consumerism, extraction, and exploitation. Join us at patreon.com slash for the wild or make a donation at forthewild.world slash donate. And if you're already supporting us in one way or another, we want to thank you so much and wish you a beautiful season wherever you are. Hello and welcome to For the Wild podcast. I'm Ayana Young. At age seven, Camille Dauphin promised herself to be a paleontologist. She is now digging soil, not looking for dinosaur bones, admittedly, but looking for some things equally fascinating, plant roots and their fungal partners called mycorrhizal fungi. The most effective strategies to protect our existing forest and especially the beautiful old-growth forest uh, of the Pacific Northwest. Camille spent four years during her PhD studying Douglas fir trees alongside Dr. Suzanne Samard. Since then, Camille crossed the border and invaded the peatlands of Minnesota, a type of wetlands which are the world's largest natural terrestrial carbon store. Supported by Dr. Colleen Iverson, she is now a postdoctoral research associate spying on roots and their fungal friends in one of the world's largest peatland warming experiments. Well, Camille, thank you so much for joining me today on For the Wild podcast. I'm really excited to dive into all things fungi and forest with you. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Well, before we begin, I just want to take a moment to honor mycorrhizal fungi and fungi in general. 
Now, as I prepared for this interview, I remembered my time in Cordova, Alaska last year, where I actually learned about the inseparable relationship between salmon and fungi, as salmon rely on certain fungi as sensory markers that aid them in returning to their natal waters, which is just such a tender reminder of how powerful these profound actors are. To lose, alter, or jeopardize the health of these connectors will undoubtedly create a profound domino effect in our dynamic ecosystems. And many of our listeners are familiar with the forest as a cooperative, you know, a resilient system where vast mycorrhizal networks link one tree to another. However, this interdependence also creates serious vulnerabilities. So to begin our conversation, I'd like to talk about how mycorrhizal networks are faring through land and habitat degradation, perhaps beginning with traditional logging and clear-cutting. I imagine mycorrhizal networks are being seriously compromised by clear-cutting, soil compaction, and degradation, so I'd love if you could give us some more details. I want to start first by, you know, saying that mycorrhizal networks are formed by mycorrhizal fungi. And really those fungi engage in a symbiotic relationship with plants um, and they physically associate with uh, plant fibers to form those networks. And they eventually link many plant fibers together using their uh, microscopic filaments. So, you know, when we think about forestry as an industry, um, you know, forestry mainly focuses on the trees in a forest. But like human societies, uh, forest ecosystems consist of thousands of uh, interactions and interconnectedness among the plants, the animals, so you mentioned the salmons, and also the microbes that live above and below the soil surface. So um, you were talking about traditional uh, forestry practices, which are clear cutting and replanting uh, in the Pacific Northwest. And so, of course, uh, those practices disrupt the connection between the trees and their uh, symbiotic fungal partners. So, you know, when clear cutting removes all the trees, it can rapidly decrease the amount and diversity of mycorrhizal fungi because those fungi really need to partner with trees for their survival. And eventually, the decrease in, in the diversity of these mycorrhizal fungi may lead to a decrease in the productivity of uh, the naturally regenerating seedlings. But I also want to emphasize that even when mycorrhizal fungal networks are disrupted because of uh, logging and clear-cutting and harvesting, there are still mycorrhizal fragments or mycelial fragments that are uh, left in the soil. And so those fragments are really the seeds uh, that can reform networks uh, fairly quickly. And um, actually research led by Dr. Susan Simard uh, at the University of British Columbia, has shown that when mycorrhizal networks of trees uh, remain in the soil, even if the trees were um, left after harvest, then those fungal fragments can still colonize the regenerating seedlings. And it can actually dramatically increase their establishment, their survival, and, and their growth. So really, you know, mycorrhizal networks can withstand uh, forestry as long as uh, there are some trees that are left behind to help the next generation of trees. Oh, well, that's so wonderful to hear. Thank you for that. And 
I want to bring up another point regarding forestry. And, you know, forestry is increasingly becoming more and more poisonous as fungicides, pesticides, and herbicides are continuously used without any hesitation or regard for their long-lasting and tremendous impacts. Where I am, I currently bear witness to private timber companies using amazapir, which is used for vegetation control. And while the makers of this silent killer will continue to deny this, amazapir, like most pesticides and herbicides, are carcinogenic. So I'm really curious about the long-term effects of herbicides or other poisons on fungal networks. Yeah, so, yeah, I'm I'm actually sad to hear that too. But, you know, when you use fungicides, of course, um, all of the living fungi in the forest will be impacted. So it uh, includes the mycorrhizal fungi, but also the fungi that decompose wood in the forest uh, that are the saprotrophs and also the pathogenic fungi uh, that colonize uh, the plant fine roots. So, Yes, by suppressing mycorrhizal fungi using uh, fungicides, you will severely damage uh, the fungal networks. And that's a vicious cycle because um, if you damage the mycorrhizal networks, then uh, less tree fine roots will be colonized by those mycorrhizal fungi. And so it will be even more difficult to form mycorrhizal networks. So I also want to emphasize that I'm not myself very familiar with research on herbicides and and pesticides in forest. But I can say that based on research in the forest of uh, British Columbia, we know that plants are adapted to their soil environments, really. They are adapted to the microbes that live in the soil and especially to mycorrhizal fungi. And so this is what we refer to uh, as local adaptation. And so, of course, if we remove the plants or the insects with the use of herbicides and pesticides, we will certainly disrupt the communities of organisms in the soil, which may then negatively impact the plants and the fungi that rely on them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And you studied under Dr. Suzanne Samard, who so thoughtfully introduced the term mother trees into the scientific lexicon by proving not only do older trees recognize their kin, but they actively provide them with larger mycorrhizal networks, reduce their own root competition for them, communicate when danger is present, and even send farewell messages prior to their death. You now work with the Mother Tree Project, which is building upon these findings and contextualizing them with forest resilience. And so As we talk about disturbances to forest ecosystems, I'd like to ask you a little bit more about what happens when we lose these mother trees and what role do they play in forest regeneration? Right. So as you said, you know, discovering that trees are a cooperative organism was an important paradigm um, in um, the way we see forest and the way we manage forest. And so, yes, you talked about the mother tree. Um, This is a project led by Dr. Susan Simard at the University of British Columbia in Canada. And this project started in 2015 with the core goal of designing forest practices that would be based on ecology. Um, so that we can create more resilient forests, more forests that would be more healthy and be able to deal with climate change and to deal with uncertainties. So uh, 
this experiment was designed to um, apply harvesting at intensities that would minimize losses. And so minimize losses of carbon, minimize losses of biodiversity and productivity. So um, forests can withstand global change without changing their basic structure and functions. And so that means that we want to know how we can best retain the mother trees during harvesting, because, as you know, you know, the mother trees are the biggest and oldest trees in the forest, and they also have uh, the greatest connections with the other trees through mycorrhizal networks. And those trees also have the highest photosynthetic activity, which means that they can send a lot of carbon under the crown to sustain their fungal partners. So they contribute the most to the maintenance of mycorrhizal networks. And so uh, the research that we have been doing with mother trees uh, has shown that the survival rates of uh, seedlings that were planted near the mother trees would increase by two to four times. So it's really important that we try to understand what are the ecological roles of these mother trees after harvesting. And we try to really design practices that would uh, help the mother trees to then help the forest. Mm -hmm. Well, thinking about mother trees and the care they provide in stressed forests leads me to think about climate change and how many of our forests are radically changing under hotter and drier climates. Globally, our forests support almost two-thirds of the Earth's terrestrial species, and so to see them change will no doubt have profound implications. So how are drier and hotter climates impacting mycorrhizal networks and the resiliency of the forest? And will these networks cease to exist, or will they just work differently? Yeah, so, you know, it's important because Many scientists around the world currently are working to really understand the impact of climate change on soil microbial communities. And it's crucial because, you know, when we think about these interactions, um, they, they just happen at the scale of the millimeters in the soil, but they have global scale consequences for uh, soil carbon sequestration and also for lessening the gravity of climate change. So, we know that elevated temperature and associated drought alter the community composition of fungi and also the functional composition. But we have to keep in mind that the impact of climate changes on microbial communities are highly context dependent. So for example, in Alaska, um, some fungi will prefer to ensure their survival under warming and drying. So they would maintain the functioning of their cells rather than feeding on carbon in the case of saprotrophs. We also know that uh, climate change in the Arctic tundra would favor microsat fungi that form uh, extensive mycelial networks. And actually my research uh, in northern Minnesota tells a similar story. So I work on uh, the spruce and peatland responses and their changing environment experiment. Um, and this experiment funded by uh, the Department of Energy's Office of Science is really designed to know um, how northern peatland ecosystem will respond to 
rising temperatures and elevated atmospheric carbon dioxide. And so what we do with uh, Dr. Colleen Iverson is to uh, look at the fungal growth and look at the root growth uh, by remotely operating um, robotic cameras installed under the ground at the spruce. And we really want to know, uh, as you said, how a drier and hotter climate would impact the world below our feet. And so we recently found that warming in this peatland can lead to a loss of fungal functional diversity. But interestingly, um, whole ecosystem warming may, may benefit the formation of mycorrhizal networks because we observe extensive fungal networks with warming. And so if you want to judge for yourself and visualize these changes, uh, you can visit Dr. Iverson's website where we uh, actually share snapshot of uh, this hidden below ground world uh, in the spruce experiment pit bog. In preparing for this interview, I learned that Dr. Simard has run experiments with Douglas firs and ponderosa pines to learn how they will behave amidst climate change. Because ponderosas, as lower elevation species, are expected to begin replacing Doug firs. And sure enough, it was shown that in areas where Doug firs are mother trees, when they are injured, not only do they dump their carbon into the network so that the ponderosa can have it, but defense enzymes are upregulated in all seedlings, which underscores again the importance of mycorrhizal networks as trees navigating climate change regimes, as well as an example of how native species are aiding new species when they recognize that they may no longer be the dominant species. It's so amazing. Yeah, exactly. So really, the, the trees uh, have evolved in you know a cooperation relationship with uh, the trees of the same species, but also the trees of different species. And so um, you mentioned that trees can recognize their um, the, their offspring. They can recognize their kin and send more carbon to their kin through the mycorrhizal fungal networks. And so you mentioned uh, Dr. C Suzanne Simard research on ponderosa pine and Douglas fir, but she also showed that um, Douglas fir can collaborate with uh, deciduous trees. So when those deciduous trees uh, lose their, their leaves, um, during the, the fall and the winter, then the Douglas fir trees can send more carbon to them um, to help them dealing with uh, the fact that they lose their leaves so they cannot photosynthesize um, enough to uh, gain enough carbon to sustain their roots. <laughs> so incredible. Oh, um, well, I'm also curious about how fungi are affected by forest fires and if changing fire regimes mean anything for tree communication. And how are mycorrhizal networks impacted by fire in general? Yeah, so I want to emphasize first that uh, fire are part of a natural ecosystem. So I Fires are part of the functioning of natural ecosystem. But when uh, you have changes in fire regime or changes in fire intensity and severity with climate change, then that's becoming a problem to the ecosystem because 
the natural ecosystem would not be adapted to uh, these specific changes. So um, depending on the severity and the frequency of fire, uh, they can severely impact the microbial communities in the soil, but they do not necessarily kill all the microbes in the soil. They mainly change uh, the community composition of the microbes. And so, of course, if you think that you know, some species rely on certain microbes or on certain uh, microbes or fungal species to survive. And then if those species uh, cannot um, withstand fire, then those plant species might um, just disappear because they will not have their partner to sustain their growth. So really when a forest is reduced to ashes, microbes are really the first step for the forest to regenerate. Interesting. Yeah. That's fascinating too. I was actually last night, I was in this incredible national forest that has definitely been hit by fire. And there's a mosaic of old growth and probably second, third growth from old logging sites. And then these fire fire patches. And what's coming up in those fire patches is so much abundance and food and medicine and biodiversity. So I could really see how the forest is regenerating relatively quickly and bringing in so many animals to these fire burned areas to create new life. And yeah, like I said, just so much more diversity than even just the forest 100 feet away that didn't get burned. And so just being in a forest that had had this mosaic of burns and really understanding the evolution of what happens after a fire, it was an incredible space to be in to have a different perspective on the conventional or the kind of the majority fear of forest fires in general. Yeah, exactly. And this is um, how you say it, you know, it creates diversity. It's part of the natural cycle in, in nature. And really, um, after a fire, you can have many different fungal species that would actually take advantage of the high temperature and disperse their spore because they like fire. So it creates a new communities of plants and fungi. And, you know, eventually uh, when the forest develops and evolves, then um, we might end up with a forest hundred years from now that would look the same um, as a forest that you can see that uh, didn't have fire or didn't burn. So it's really creating a mosaic of different patches uh, on the landscape. And it's, it's actually really beautiful.
I'd like to now transition our conversation to discuss restoration, reforestation, and afforestation, and how these goals have really been bolstered by scientific studies that highlight their possibility to cut down atmospheric carbon dioxide by 25%. And so in the past couple of years, governments, corporations, and NGOs have really become hyper-obsessed with mass reforestation and afforestation in the name of carbon sequestration. But even a sort of cursory dive into this reveals that, like any other quick fix, it's riddled with problems. And I know I'm going to go on here for a bit, but for listeners, I want to share a short story of what this looks like. So in Japan during World War II, huge swaths of forests were cut down because of a booming demand for timber. In the aftermath, Japan instituted a large-scale tree planting initiative. But of course, there wasn't an ecological approach to this. The government just wanted to reforest as quickly as possible so that there would be future resources, and they could mitigate mass rain runoff and landslides caused by earlier deforestation. So they only planted two species, fast-growing hinoki and sugi, or Japanese cypress and cedar, essentially converting over 40% of Japan's total forest cover to just these two species. And today, the ramifications of this move are really tremendous. For example, because evergreens don't drop their leaves as often, the surrounding rivers now have less fish because water sources are without minerals, and Japan has a mass hay fever problem. So unfortunately, this isn't just in Japan. Many countries continue to make the same mistake by using single species. Countries like China, Brazil, and Australia, which coincidentally, alongside Russia, the U.S., and Canada, make up more than 50% of global tree reforestation potential. So I wonder if you can talk about the inner workings and the problems of these one-track-minded solutions to carbon emissions and the ramifications of putting trees where they don't really belong. Yes, exactly. So I didn't know this problem with Japan, and, and I think that's a very good example of bad reforestation practices. So I want to emphasize, you know, that tree trees and forest ecosystem help limit global warming because they reduce the concentration of carbon dioxide in our atmosphere. Um, and so, you know, regrowing and expanding existing forests, which is reforestation, and growing new forests, which is afforestation, are good ways to capture and store additional carbon from the atmosphere. But, you know, effectively planting trees to capture carbon dioxide, um, you have to think about several criteria, and you cannot just plant trees everywhere. Uh, you cannot just plant the tree species uh, that you think will be best for this area. There are many things to consider. And the first criteria is the location of trees, right? So, Trees would not naturally grow in some areas such as savannas, grassland, or tundra ecosystems. And so um, if you plant trees in those type of ecosystems, uh, the carbon dioxide could actually be released 
into the atmosphere instead of being removed. And so it's also a big problem in peatland ecosystems because many peatlands have been trained uh, for tree planting. But uh, we know now that the carbon that was stored for millennia uh, into the peat was released because trees were planted in those ecosystems. So actually, tropical ecosystem and especially the Amazon rainforest have the greatest potential for both uh, large-scale restoration and afforestation. And, you know, I mentioned those different criteria and the location of trees are important, but also the choice and management of tree species uh, are of crucial importance. So, you know, we want to plant a large diversity of native tree species because that's the more effective way uh, to store carbon than monoculture. So you were um, talking about the example of Japan, uh, but we have many more examples around the globe where uh, fast-growing pine and eucalyptus and poplar were planted. And usually those species are not native to the location where they are planted. So it's a big problem and it's actually not storing as much carbon as we wanted. And also we have to think about what happens to the carbon after it becomes a tree. Right? How can we store the carbon when we uh, replant the forest? And so the carbon can be stored as wooden products, it can be stored in the soil, and it can be stored in sediments. And all of this would help uh, global warming or would limit global warming. But it's really important to consider the afterlife of a tree. Mm -hmm. Just thinking more about Japan and even what I've heard from folks in Australia, that in some areas, native forests are actually cut down and have been cut down and replaced by more lucrative plantation forest. But of course, that can also be deemed as a carbon sequestration project. And if you don't look at the fine print, you're not realizing um, what's actually happening to then sequester the carbon. Or the other thing, uh, the current national Japanese forestry laws mandate that whenever sugi or a hinoki tree is cut down, it must be replanted with a seedling of the same species. So it's not even really possible to do ecologically minded holistic reforestation in some of these areas, even if somebody wanted to. So yeah, there's a lot of complexity here. And I'm just so fascinated with this whole world of the reforestation industrial complex, especially in my own work. And it has been a real shocker to learn all this stuff about tree planting because from the outside it seems so good it seems like there what could what could possibly be wrong with planting more trees but then you open up that wormhole and you know you realize there's a lot going on there but yes i also want to mention you know um many um ngos that are trying to help society to offset our carbon emission some of the ngos do not want to invest in planting trees because as you said there are so many things to consider and forest takes a lot of time to regenerate and to grow and so it can be a very effective um, strategy to tackle climate change but you know more in the long term but in the short term there are uh, projects project that might be better suited to you know, mitigate climate change than uh, planting trees, especially if you plant trees without having a good management strategy plan. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. 
Well, before we delve deeper into the reforestation industrial complex, I'm thinking back to my conversation with Peter Wellenbin, who reminds us that trees that grow slower and under canopy are actually stronger. They have more fungal connections and they're a part of this truly powerful system. But like we were just talking about, human desire, institutional desire, is to just plant trees that grow fast so we can see our success and feel like we've fixed the problem. But how do we reconcile our desire for tree growth if it comes at the expense of biodiversity? And so I'm thinking about how a lack of wisdom on our part and our desire for fast global solutions has profound implications on ecologies, as well as how if we sever old growth, we sever the wisdom amongst trees. And I wonder if maybe you could speak to the importance of saving old growth forests in relation to the mycorrhizal networks. Yes, exactly. So, um, as you say, the, the most effective strategy is to protect our existing forest and especially the beautiful old growth forest uh, of the Pacific Northwest. And so um, it is really tied to the research of Dr. Teresa Ryan and Dr. Susan Simard on the salmon forest of the Pacific Northwest, because they show that the nutrients that are uh, taken up um, by the salmon from the sea are returning to the forest through the predators such as the wolves and the bears and the eagles eating the salmons. And so eventually, you know, the those predators leave the salmon carcasses on the mm -hmm. forest floor. And yeah, and the nutrients from the salmon are then, um, you know, decomposed and taken up by the roots and the mycorrhizal fungi. And those nutrients are then uh, transferred through different trees through the fungal networks. And we can find the signature of the salmon nutrients in the tree rings. And this memory, this signature are stored um, in tree rings for centuries. And so it really provides a memory bank of historical salmon runs. And so really the circle of life depends on the trade of mutual respects. And so, you know, this is a good example of how people are sustainably embedded in these uh, complex adaptive systems that are a forest and the societies. And so you know, we really need to protect this memory because at the end of the day, it is the memory of our societies. So we need to protect our old-growth forest. Could not agree with you more on that. Something that I'm really witnessing is the ways in which restoration and reforestation are byproducts of extractive industry. That is the framework they exist in. And so I'm really questioning what are we putting into motion? And I come back to a question Suzanne Samard poses, which is how can we reinforce and help the forest rather than weakening them? And to me, so much restoration work actually does weaken the forest. It's not in servitude to these ecosystems. It serves corporations and companies that are backing these projects for image boosting or job generation. So my question here is, how can we cultivate restoration work that is truly in servitude to the forest while also creating integrated and dignified jobs and experiences for each other? So when uh, forestry, when forest practices are based on ecology, we we want to, you know, help forests to withstand 
global changes. We want to help them, you know, sustain their biodiversity and keep storing carbon and, and keep being productive. And so really trying to protect existing forests is the best way we can we can do that. But when we regrow and expand existing forest, um, we need to think about those three things, right? So carbon storage and biodiversity and productivity and when you plant a mixture of native species and you manage them sustainably, this might be a very encouraging way that we can save the forest and we can help the forest to be more resilient to uh, future disturbances. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I um, I think about there are some restoration projects that are happening near me and I kind of put the restoration in air quotes because they're wanting to do road decommissioning. And that means, you know, to them, well, what it, what it actually really looks like is, for, for this instance particularly, it's a logging road that has right by a creek and it has been growing back for the past 30 or 40 years. And so there's huckleberries and redwoods and dug firs and... Uh, red root and white thorn have all grown up on this old logging road and the buffer zones in between it. So there's no sedimentation coming off this road anymore. And it's been taken over by plants. But they want to bring in bulldozers and excavators and dig up all of this road that has been overgrown. So take out all of the trees and plants that have grown on it, dig up the soil, which of course is going to create even more sediment, which will then affect the creeks and the rivers, um, potentially really injuring the salmon in terms of the beds that they lay their eggs in or even suffocating them in their gills. And so I'm looking at this project knowing that it's funded by Bank of America and the likes, you know, getting major major grants and massive funding to basically go in, use more fossil fuels, use these large machines that are compacting the soil, ripping up what's already grown just in the name of restoration. And I'm like, this is just a way to keep the economic capitalist model moving forward. It's just a way to continue eating up fossil fuels, get subsidies, and disturb the forest even more. And so it's, yeah, I definitely have a lot of frustrations when it comes to modern day restoration projects that have been created by the logging industry. Um, and and then I know there's so many well-meaning people like myself who didn't understand this and really just wanted to support restoration and reforestation, not realizing that there's so many nuances to how it's done. And um, yeah, so I just, I had to give give you that little rant because I'm so frustrated by it all (laughs) i do understand this this frustration um yes i i cannot comment on specific examples but um you know if we keep in mind that whenever we want to restore an ecosystem you know we have to think about the ecology of the ecosystem first we have to think about Mm -hmm. the consequences and what is the context and um why would you restore the ecosystem you know what's your primary goal and but you also have to think long term right and so many of the projects around the world might not um, have this long-term perspective and it's really it's really important because ecosystem are taking 
a long time to grow. They are taking a long time to establish those interaction and interconnectedness that makes makes them resilient to disturbances, resilience to climate change. So we need to give nature more time. Yeah. Yeah, I'm with you there. And <laughs> I think that when we try to speed up a forest and say, oh, we're going to speed up this process and make it be old growth sooner. It's like, well, we can't make old growth sooner. I mean, it's just <laughs> old growth is old growth because it takes time and it's complex and things grow and the soil builds. It's like really such a human supremacist mindset to think that we can somehow create old growth in our lifetimes or within five years or 10 years. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm really with you on that. And I would say as an individual, I, I strongly feel um, that we cannot create nature. You know, we, we can thrive to understand and we can thrive to help nature um, to um, then try to help us, um, you know, mitigating climate change and um, sustaining our local communities. But we really have to be humble um, with that, and and I think I think this is really um, what uh, a mother tree project is about. You know, trying to help forests be more resilient, and trying to uh, take the knowledge that you know Susan Simar and colleagues have uh, accumulated for decades trying to really understand um, what are the role of mother trees and how we can, you know, um, maintain those trees, those extremely important trees, um, so they can um, better um, help the next generation of forest um, to deal with changes. And the same way as society has to deal with changes too. So we also um, have to take the ecosystem as examples and, you know, take more time and create more interactions. <laughs> it, it is pretty hard right now with our situations, but it is really important. In context to reforestation and restoration, I do want to ask you a bit about the mycorrhizal networks you observe. When we introduce trees and plants that are grown outside of that soil into clear cuts, where the soil has been damaged, does this impact tree growth? And does it make sense to relocate native fungal strains into forests that have been damaged, like they do with trees and other plants? I don't really have a lot of knowledge on this topic. And I'm not I'm not really an expert in you know reintroducing native uh, fungal strength strengths. Um, I 
think as an individual, as an individual, I feel that the ecosystem could take many different roads, could take many different paths. Um, and it's really hard to anticipate how uh, an ecosystem would react to the introduction of an external agent, even if it's native uh, from the soil of a given area, right? Um, because, you know, you have so many interactions and so many um, interconnections that, you know, if you remove one of the nodes uh, that are the trees or the plants and the links that are the fungi, uh, you don't really know um, how the ecosystem will recover. And so this is the same principle. If you add one link one agent to the ecosystem, you don't really know how um, the others uh, part of the ecosystem will react to it. Right. Yeah, it's complex for those of us who do want to be engaged with reforestation in a holistic, ecological-minded way, um, learning from the First Nations people who hold the traditional ecological knowledge. You know, I guess... Do you see any forms of replanting or reintroducing um, different species into a damaged, let's say, clear-cut area? Do you think that is beneficial at all? Or do you think the forest should just be allowed to repopulate on its own? Or So, yeah, it's like, do, are, are you on either end of that spectrum? And if you are on the spectrum that, yeah, we can introduce things, what do you think is the best way to do that? Right, so I think the context is really important, right? Trying to understand what's the history of the forest that was cut, uh, you know, what are the native species, uh, what was the connection, you know, um, uh, what is the the microbial communities of the soil. And, and as an individual, I do think that uh, reforestation projects are very important. And, and, you know, research shows that um, they, um, they can help us mitigate climate change, but really trying to understand um, what are the species that you want to plant, um, what are uh, the long-term consequences, you know, trying to take all of that into account. And, you know, planting trees is not a just about uh, putting uh, a plant into the soil is really trying to help the plant be um, resilient to what's going to happen to it, right? So, and for that, the plants need the microbial community and needs the right microbial community. So you have to take all of that into account before replanting trees. But I do think that you know, first protecting existing forest and then second planting trees uh, is are the best solutions to um, help our forest um, be more resilient to future conditions. Well, Camille, for my final question, I'd like to ask you about a project you're currently working on, which assesses the response of northern forested peatlands to increasing temperatures and carbon dioxide levels. And for those who are unfamiliar, peatlands are so vital when it comes to climate change because they hold around a third of the world's carbon. So what are you learning about the mycorrhizal networks and peatlands under climate change and what kind of rapid changes are they going to experience? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so thanks, Sayana, for, um, you know, 
telling people that peatlands are extremely important because they, they actually store uh, more carbon than all other vegetation type combined. But they are highly vulnerable to climate change and mainly because the combined risk of rising temperature and changing the hydrologic conditions in the peatlands. And so um, I'm working on, on this experiment called Spruce, um, and it's located in um, a peatland in northern Minnesota. And it was really designed to know if climate change would lead to a release of carbon from this ecosystem. And so what we find so far is that whole ecosystem warming as uh, extended the active season, season of the trees and shrubs that are growing in these systems. And so that means that the trees such as uh, the tamarack, uh, the spruce, and the shrubs such as rhododendrons will have more time to grow. And um, some other research on the spruce project also shows that microbial fungi are decomposing faster uh, when the soil is warm and when the air is warm. Um, and also the shrubs are really happy in this warmer environment and um, their growth is exploding above the soil surface, but also below the soil surface. And I want to emphasize that all of these changes have converted this specific peatland from an ecosystem gaining carbon to an ecosystem losing carbon at pretty high rate. And so, you know, if we think globally, um, you know, if we think about peatlands around the world, it's possible that we might lose carbon from this peatland um, that can be as high as 50% of the amount of carbon dioxide, dioxide emitted by each car in the US. So you can you know, think about it and realize that it's a lot of carbon that we might be losing. So I want to emphasize that trying to protect boreal uh, peatland biodiversity is crucial um, if we really want to lessen the impact of, of global change. So, you know, um, you can try to uh, get engaged with NGOs that are trying to uh, protect this uh, fragile ecosystem. Um, and you can yourself, you know, um, uh, educate yourself on the importance of this ecosystem, but also on the importance of Arctic tundra and on the importance of tropical forest. And it's really about your knowledge and what you can do with that. Well, I know I said that was my last question, but I, I would love to hear just a little bit more about the peatlands. And I'm wondering if you could kind of orient us geographically to where many of them are located, um, maybe what they look like, or even what the site that you've been working on looks like, feels like, where it is, just because I, I really want the audience to be able to visualize these peatlands with us. Yeah, yeah. No, uh, peatlands are extremely beautiful. <laughs> um, so they, so the term peatlands refers to the peat soil and the wetland habitats that grow on it. So, you know, the the peat layers are um, 
um, partially decomposed materials that have accumulated over uh, the boreal landscape or over the tropical landscape for uh, thousands and thousands of years. And so uh, peatlands are generally located uh, in the northern hemisphere, and we talk about northern peatland or boreal peatlands, but you also have um, a significant area of uh, the globe that is covered by peatland uh, in tropical forest or in the tropical biome. And so um, in northern Minnesota, where uh, the spruce experiment is located, we are working in a peat bog. And so um, this eco ecosystem is waterlogged uh, the whole year. It's, it's very wet. And we have a lot of mosses that grow um, above you know, and create those beautiful moss carpets. Um, and we have the mosses, some mosses are green and some mosses are red. So it really creates a landscape, a mosaic of different colors. And then the mosses are surrounded by the trees and the shrubs um, that also uh, are part of the ecosystem. And so we have some trees such as spruce that are uh, coniferous species that never um, uh, never lose their needles. But we also have large or tamaracks, uh, that's the same species, uh, that lose their needles. So that's deciduous coniferous trees. And those beautiful large trees, uh, before they lose their needles, they um, they turn yellow. And so if you have the chance to be in Minnesota and uh, to see those peatlands in the fall, you can see that the whole landscape will become yellow because of the, the large trees. So that's, that's, that's extremely beautiful. Oh, I didn't want you to stop. I was just with you. <laughs> right. <laughs> Seeing the colors and yeah. Yeah, I know. <laughs> You could if so if you really have the chance to uh, go to northern Minnesota, uh, the spruce experiment is open to the public. So you can really see um, the huge greenhouses uh, that encompass the trees and really judge for yourself uh, the importance of peatland and um, you know what scientists have to do to understand their response to global change. Um, and so uh, the spruce team uh, has built these uh, gigantic greenhouses of uh, seven, seven meters tall. And so the way it works is that we have uh, different greenhouses uh, with different temperature treatments. And so um, in some greenhouses you enter and you feel that it's really warm. It might be um, four degrees warmer than the outside air temperature. But in some greenhouses you enter and it's actually plus nine degrees Celsius. So it's it's really warmer than what you can experience um, if you are out in, in the natural peatland. So it's really interesting visually to look at the changes in the species uh, community composition and to look at these changes also uh, in the number of mushrooms that can grow uh, above the moss carpet. So you might have a lot of mushrooms growing in those really warm uh, greenhouses. And then if you go to a greenhouses that would be less warm, uh, what you can see is way more mosses, but less mushrooms. And the trees are greener in those uh, uh, less or in, in those colder greenhouses. So it's really interesting to, um, to judge 
visually what's happening. And actually, um, I would encourage listeners to go to uh, the Spruce website uh, because uh, the Spruce team has um, installed cameras in each of uh, the experimental enclosure where you can actually visualize um, what is going on live. And then you can look at the change um, in um, the, the species, the pattern of the growth and um, the spring green dawn and autumn green dawn of the trees and the shrubs. You can, you can look at that uh, with the, the videos that we are taking. Um, so if you're, if you're interested in that, you can, you can visit the Spruce website. Mm, I will. Yeah, I, I have a bit, but I will again. Well, Camille, this has been so wonderful. Thank you so much for talking about the forest with me, which is definitely my fa- one of my favorites, if not my favorite topic to jump into. So this is, yeah, this has been really lovely. Yeah, thank you so much, Ayana. And thank you for having uh, such wonderful, wonderful podcast. Thank you for listening to another episode of For the Wild podcast. The music you heard today was by Harrison Foster, If by Whiskey, and Ali Deneen. For the Wild is created by Ayana Young, Erica Ekram, Francesca Glassbell, and Melanie Younger. <laughs>